FromTheHeart.org Radio, in collaboration with Mayo Clinic, you are listening to Mayo Clinic Talks. This is uh, Dr. Vuisilin Como, um, co-director of the Vevla Heart Disease Clinic uh, at the Mayo Clinic Rochester. Here with Mayo Talk, my guest today is Dr. Joseph Duraney, chair of the Division of Cardiovascular Surgery. Uh, welcome, Joe. Thank you, Vui. Nice to be here. So we're going to talk today about uh, valvular heart disease and uh, surgery for valve disease. Uh, what valves are best for repair? Well, I think that there are, all valves have the potential to be repaired, um, but there are some that obviously have a greater probability. Uh, mitral valve disease in this country is probably the one that gets the most attention, you know, the cause being degenerative, prolapsing, myxomatous mitral valve disease. Uh, that is the most common for sure. Aortic valves can be repaired. Generally speaking, it's the, it's the regurgitant valve, oftentimes a bicuspid valve. Uh, that is also something that can be repaired. Uh, there is a, there's a subgroup of those patients, actually, that can have um, aneurysm formation of the aorta. Uh, and it, there, are, there, are, there are some procedures that we do where the aortic valve is preserved while the aneurysm is being addressed. The most common would be the valve-sparing aortic root replacement that we do for patients with Marfan syndrome. And then finally, the tricuspid valve. I think the tricuspid valve really is abnormal um, on a secondary basis most of the time, um, usually because of abnormalities on the left side of the heart. So uh, structurally, the tricuspid valve oftentimes is normal and it leaks because the annulus is dilated, the ventricles dilated, the pulmonary artery pressures are a little bit elevated. Uh, and so this is an ideal situation where you might want to try and repair. And then, of course, there's the, there's, the, there's the fleet of congenital abnormalities of the tricuspid valve that also lend itself to repair. The pulmonary valve is probably one that is least likely to repair, with the exception of pulmonary stenosis, where you can do valvotomy. Now, most of those valvotomies are done percutaneously and usually early on in life, sometimes in infancy, uh, occasionally a surgical valvotomy. But beyond that, that's a valve, unfortunately, that when it requires an intervention, it's usually replacement. Okay. Now, uh, overall, would you say a successful repair is better than a successful replacement if a valve can be repaired? Oh, I think in general that is, the, that is a guiding principle, I think, for both you and me on the medical and the surgical side. In general, I think valve repair is preferred whenever it's feasible. Um, it's you have... Uh, a situation where you can optimize ventricular function when you have your own valve. You have a situation where a patient has less concern about infection that could be related to a valve that's been replaced. Uh, of course, you uh, there's, there's no intervention that we do that would eliminate the need for something down the road anyway. So even if you replace the valve, that doesn't that does that's not a promise that another intervention would 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 be avoided down the road. So in general, I think whenever we can repair a valve, that is generally the the strategy that I think uh, we try to take. Now, in terms of your approach to these uh, surgeries, uh, we hear a lot about minimally invasive surgery versus a traditional uh, stenotomy. Uh, what can be done minimally invasive? So I think that one of the greatest advances uh, in the last uh, in the last decade uh, or more in cardiac surgery has been a more a, a less invasive approach to traditional operations that we have done with an open sternotomy, um, and most recently it would be the robotic approach. Now the advantage of the robotic approach is that the incisions are very small, 
And so you have, uh, you do not have, you know, division of muscle and spreading of ribs or division of the sternum. And so the, uh, the, the satisfaction from a patient's standpoint is, is, is very appealing. Not only are they more comfortable, but their ability to return to work earlier is optimized and things of that. So the minimally invasive approach is, is becoming much more commonplace for many of these operations, but it's not for all of them. So I suspect you're going to ask me which ones would be the best ones. Exactly. <laughs> well, I think that the, the, the one that's, that's gotten the greatest visibility and the greatest press has been the robotic uh, mitral repair. Uh, the, uh, you know, when the patient's body habit is his ideal, which is generally relatively, you know, lean and trim, uh, the approach to, uh, to do this robotically is optimized, uh, particularly if the patient's young and we have an absence of other comorbidities that, uh, that, that would make, uh, make a percutaneous approach a little more challenging, peripheral vascular disease or concomitant other cardiac disease that would require attention, for example, coronary bypass grafting. But that's probably the, the, the approach that is used most commonly now in our practice here. Most of the mitral valve repairs in our own practice are done robotically um, for all those reasons. And I think probably the most important point to be made is that uh, at least in our experience, we can reproduce the operation that we do robotically. It is identical to the operation that we do open. Mm-hmm. And as, as you probably know from your, your experience and in inter, in interface with colleagues around the country, when you have a minimally invasive approach, the operation sometimes gets more abbreviated and simplified, shortcuts, so to speak. And I think that when, when you can do what's been tested, tried, and true robotically compared to what we did, you know, in the old-fashioned open way, that's the ideal thing for patients. That's perfect. So then you can do the same surgery in terms of repairing the valve as you can with open... Identical person. operation. Leaflet resection, artificial chordae, the use of rings, um, even arrhythmia procedures at the time. We have made a genuine effort to reproduce the open operation robotically or at least with a thoracoscope or some minimal, minimal incision. Now, some of the patients will come to the valvular heart disease clinic uh, having had previous open heart surgery and now have to have uh, another surgery, let's say this time for the mitral valve, um, and they're suitable candidates for repair. Can those patients be uh, operated on using the minimally invasive way, for yeah. instance, the robotic way? So that's, that, that is the, that is the uh, one group of patients that we do not have the ability to do sort of standard robotic surgery. Previous surgery is a, is a contraindication to the robotic approach, for the most part. There would be, there would be rare exceptions, but generally speaking. Um, there might be a situation where you can do a limited incision in the setting of previous surgery. Um, but I think across the board, most reoperations end up being done in a traditional manner. Okay. There are too many unexpecteds, and you need to be able to be prepared, and you need to be able to handle them when they occur. And a standard incision allows you to do that. Good. Now, it sounds like there are some shifts here. We've moved from uh, replacing most valves to repairing valves. We've moved from open uh, stenotomies to minimal invasive uh, surgery to robotics. Uh, now, can all surgeons do this across the United States? Yeah, that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's an important point. Um, well, no. To be fair, not all surgeons do it, but it's, it's, it's really related to the volume in your own practice. 
And there is no question that the ability to repair and the result is going to be related to how many you do. It's, 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 not, it's, not, it's not tricky. I mean, any proceduralist, generally speaking, the more you do, the better you get at it. Now, I know that at the, at the recent, you know, um, um, uh, mitral valve symposium in New York, there were some interviews that were, that were done with some of the senior representatives in our specialties on the cardiology side and the surgery side. And uh, numbers that were thrown out there that from a surgeon's, from an individual surgeon's standpoint, really there should be 30 to 50 a year that, uh, you know, valve repairs that a surgeon would be doing. And from an institutional standpoint, it should probably be in the 50 to 100. And the reason for that is, and I'll throw a question back to you, is, is, is it's the multidisciplinary team approach. It's the ability of the cardiologist to identify the valve that can be repaired. It's the ability to do an analysis in the operating room that shows that you've done what you're supposed to do. I mean, that we rely as much on you to, to provide that feedback as you, as you provide to um, us. So maybe one thing that I think I would ask you to comment on, because I think one of the things that has changed valve repair surgery in the current era is imaging. And I think that that's a great credit to, to, to your group, and I think that you should maybe comment on what you think are the important you know, imaging um, studies that we do before, during, and after surgery to make sure that you keep the surgeon on the straight and narrow. Right. So imaging of the valve uh, is uh, critical. And I think one of the things um, is sort of easy access from our standpoint to, to you in terms of the surgeons. And we um, can evaluate these echocardiograms um, and uh, make a complete assessment and determination of whether the valve can be repaired or not. Because uh, talking from a standpoint of a cardiologist and not a surgeon, sometimes I can tell the patient something is repairable and, and, and then it may not be repairable. But I think it helps to have uh, you and your group readily available uh, so we can discuss uh, those images. We rely a lot on uh, quantitative uh, assessments of uh, valvular lesions, uh, be it uh, regurgitation or stenosis. And in this case, if we're talking about mitral valve regurgitation, I think it's critically important to uh, identify uh, whether a patient has severe uh, mitral valve regurgitation and um, the feasibility of repair, both with transthoracic echocardiography and then transesophageal echocardiography. And I said before, as I said before, it's, it's very uh, nice for me to be able to call you at any time or one of your colleagues to discuss these images so I can tell the patient uh, for sure um, if the valve can or cannot be repaired. Yeah. And I think one of the things that I've appreciated too is the, is the role of three-dimensional echocardiography. Now, particularly with the atrioventricular valves, the mitral and tricuspid, which, which um, I think are the valves that you're most likely to be able to repair, I think you can really get very detailed anatomy with a three-dimensional echo. And in fact, you, you can actually present it to the surgeon in a format of how they're going to be looking at it in the operating room. So it, 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 gives the, it, it allows the surgeon to start thinking about what the options are going to be to try to, you know, tackle whatever the valve problem is. No, that's correct. I mean, initially, most of us were um, uh, very good, actually, at uh, two-dimensional imaging of the mitral valve and uh, were a little bit slow to adopt the 3D, but I think 3D has really revolutionized the, the whole field because we can give you exactly the exact anatomy 
uh, of what's wrong with the valve, and you can plan ahead of time and know exactly what uh, uh, what to do with that valve. Plus, there's some other things that you can miss with just two-dimensional imaging of the mitral valve, especially commissural lesions, commissural prolapse or commissural flails, uh, that uh, 3D uh, assessment of the valve really helps you out with that. Now, maybe, you know, one other, one other, one other topic that might be worth uh, us discussing that I think would be, would be uh, helpful and important to the medical community is the timing of intervention now, because one of the, one of the things that uh, you alluded to is your ability to quantitate things in such great detail with the, with the, with the imaging that we have available, and now the risk related to surgery is so low. Uh, robotic mitral valve repair operative mortality rates are going to be they're, they're a half a percent or less that the the decision to offer intervention I think we're finding is is earlier and earlier in the game correct uh, we see patients at the valvular heart disease clinic with uh, pretty significant uh, let's say mitral valve regurgitation and we have to remember that you can remain without symptoms in the face of having pretty significant uh, valvular disease and um, we always, almost always recommend earlier uh, surgery in these patients versus a late surgery uh, because I think uh, um, outcomes are better uh, when you operate earlier than, than Provided late. that the valve can be repaired, though, which emphasizes the point of, of, of being selective about the institution and the, and the surgeon that you choose because the, uh, it, when you know that it can be repaired and you know that it can be done with low mortality, it makes the argument to intervene earlier much more convincing uh, than having a situation where, um, where a surgeon ends up replacing the valve. And if we just look across the country, it's actually quite alarming that, you know, valves, the, 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 the frequency with which the mitral valve, for example, is repaired, it occurs only about 40% of the time across the country where it likely should be probably double that, maybe more, depending upon specific circumstances. So, for the cardiologist and for the patient, I think you want to select your, 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 your surgeon uh, uh, carefully. Now, this sort of brings up another important point because patients will want to have surgery performed closer to home than at a center where a lot of these surgeries are being performed because they have um, support from their family and so forth. Um, what do we tell those patients? I, I, there, there, is, there are situations where, where you should... Um, where you should uh, make the make a trip somewhere. I mean, we're talking about trying to provide a service that could that could impact a lifetime, and we're talking about you know five days in the hospital, maybe seven to ten days, you know, away from home. It's more important. That is not an acceptable excuse to have the valve replaced at home because it's more convenient. It's 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 a much more it's much more important to seek out the proper operation for the proper patient. And if it requires a little bit of travel, I think that's it. it's in the patient's best interest. So early repair of uh, valve uh, uh, regurgitation and the operative uh, results are pretty operative, good, excellent? I, I think in, in, in an institution where the surgeon is skilled and the, and the cardiologist and the rest of the team are skilled, the, 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 the feasibility of valve repair when it's deemed to be repairable should be 95 to 98%. The uh, risk related to surgery should be less than 1%, probably less than a half a percent. And the late durability, I think, is generally excellent. It, it's a little variable depending upon the, the subgroup of, of, of the mitral valve problem. But all across the board, it is, it is generally excellent. That's what we should be striving for. Thanks, Joe. Thanks for having me, Bowie.
You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Talks. Visit theheart.org to find out more.